Hello and salam. Welcome to the Muslim Viewpoint, a new podcast series powered by American Muslim Today, a groundbreaking nonprofit digital newspaper which champions civic engagement. AMT informs and empowers the diverse voices of almost 30 million Muslims here in the US and other Western countries. I'm Rafat Malik, I'm AMT's Editor-in-Chief, and today we have an interview with Dr. Jimmy Jones, who currently serves as the Executive Vice President of the Islamic Seminary of America and is also a member of the American Academy of Religion, where he is a Professor of World Religions and African Studies. For Black History Month, Dr. Jones shares his experience growing up through the Civil Rights Movement, his personal encounters with racism and police violence, as well as his views on the treatment of black and brown people in the U.S. today. He spoke to our reporter, Maya Gaylor. Uh, Bismillah rahman rahim uh, I think we've come a long ways from when I was a kid, because I'm, I'm older, much older than you are. Uh, when, uh, when I was a kid, uh, 60% of uh, black Americans live at or near the poverty level. That means most of us. And I was I was amongst those people. By 2010, that number had dropped to 25 percent. So, from an economic perspective, things uh, are not as bad as they were 60, 70, or 80 years ago. Uh, I think what's changed is the sort of uh, social cultural milieu in which we operate. That is to say, that anybody with a laptop or a smartphone can start trouble with lots of people. That just wasn't so 50, 60 years ago. The, the people who were on the quote fringe uh, didn't have a bullhorn. And I, I would say that's the, that's the biggest difference because things, like I said, things have gotten uh, better economically in many ways, but they've gotten worse in many ways simply because like I said, fringe people have moved into the center as evidenced by some of the politics that we've seen. Right. Um, so you could, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your personal journey, um, you know, as a Black American who lived through that movement? Sure. Um, so I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and I moved to Roanoke, Virginia when I was six years old. Uh, Baltimore is a southern city, even though Maryland is a, a border state. Uh, when I got to Roanoke, Virginia, uh, I went to school in segregated schools. It was against the law for, quote, white people and black people to go to a school together. And, of course, we we always got secondhand books. Uh, we never got new books in the, they call us the colored school. Uh, and uh, the, uh, another big difference is the motivation of the teachers. I look at the motivation of the teachers who teach many African-American youth here uh, in the Northeast uh, and probably uh, in Texas as well, uh, they're mo not motivated in the same ways that my teachers were. What do I mean by this? Uh, Post-Civil War, uh, after the uh, end of the Civil War and the emancipation of over 6 million uh, formerly enslaved people, one of the priorities for the uh, African-American community was to be able to learn to read. I mean, I think one of the reasons is because slaveholders, to a large extent, forbid teaching uh, people who were enslaved to read. And so our, our literacy rate jumped uh, a good deal in the 50 years after, uh, after uh, emancipation. I think it jumped up to 7% from around 20%. Don't, don't hold me to those figures, but it was a dramatic increase. Uh, 
And so in the segregated schools, uh, there was an impetus amongst the teachers to make sure that we learned how to read and write and figure and all that that kind of thing. I, I felt that. I mean, I can hear it ringing in my ears right now. Even though uh, we're segregated, doesn't mean that we're stupid. And so uh, the only uh, Shakespeare that I ever really uh, did a book report on, I did a book report on Shakespeare in the in the fifth grade. The only German I ever learned, I learned from one of my teachers in the first grade. In other words, the teachers were about the business of making sure you learned and making sure that you learned all that they knew. That's a dramatic difference, unfortunately. But for many people, not all, it's just a job. You know, you stay in it long enough and you, and you retire. And, and that's very, very sad. That's what we lost because of integration, because we lost that sense that education was a mission, that's something we ought to do, that is, it is something we have to do, it's something that is, is going to be the ultimate uh, ultimate in terms of moving us out of poverty. And it worked for many people like myself. I mean, I'm uh, social economically different from my father and my mother because of education, because I went to school, got in high school diploma, got uh, a bachelor's degree, got a master's degree and got a doctorate degree. And uh, I'm not an anomaly. Uh, there are lots, the largest group of people in the African-American community uh, people like myself who were 50, 60, 70 years ago poor, but now uh, belong to the middle class, not solidly middle class because uh, white wealth and black wealth are still uh, very different. Uh, black, by wealth, I mean uh, uh, owning, owning a property, owning of excess uh, wealth. It, it, on paper, many of us may have uh, caught up uh, in terms of a salary, but we don't own the same wealth as white people do. So that's what I came up through. I came up through the segregated South. I thought uh, that was the way life was. I came up in the, in, the, in, the, in the situation where it was against the law for black people and white people to marry. That wasn't changed until uh, 1963 with the Supreme Court case. So it was a, it was a very different time, uh, again, uh, it was very, very difficult in terms of being seen as less than in that society. But in terms of being encouraged to be, to speak up, to be proud of myself, uh, to read, uh, to become literate, it was a plus. Unfortunately, like I said, uh, that's often not the case in, uh, particularly in the inner city school systems that many African-Americans still go to. Right. And so then on top of that, you have this intersectionality of also being Muslim. Um, mm. So even in that is a unique experience being a Black Muslim in America. Um, so can you touch on some of these specific challenges that Black Muslims face in America compared to other um, Muslim eth ethnicity groups? Well, for one thing, um, uh, Black Muslim isn't, isn't a term I'm fond of because it was coined by C. Eric Lincoln, I believe, uh, in his book, Black Muslims in America. And it sort of um, centers our Blackness as if uh, it was essential to who we are. Uh, you, you need to understand that from my perspective uh, and from a biological perspective, there's no such thing as the Black race or the white race. I mean, we talk as if there's the Black race, you know, right, white race. But from a biological perspective, 
uh, race is a biological fiction. Our skin color is not relevant to who we are as uh, ethnicities, because you'll, find, you, you'll travel the world and you see people in India, for instance, who are very light and very, very dark, uh, almost all around the world. And so uh, I, I'd, I prefer to call myself a Muslim American of African descent, centering the, the, the Muslim part, particularly since uh, it, it, I, I came from uh, Black nationalism in the sense that uh, one, one, my road to becoming a Muslim was the reading of the order, began uh, with the reading of the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, between my junior and senior years at Hampton University. And I was stunned by the book. I was stunned in, in two senses. I was stunned by his analysis of race relations in this country. I'd never heard such an analysis. I mean, what I'd heard was uh, there was a guy named Whitney Young who was affiliated with uh, the Urban League who, who talked about uh, trying to catch up with white people by having certain kinds of programs. And his goal was integration. Here was a man who said, you know, you don't integrate into a burning house. Uh, you don't uh, you don't sit at the table because uh, the reality is, is that the table is not made for you to sit at. And it was an entirely different analysis. And it, it, it opened my eyes to the negative impact of racism in this society. And I really was motivated to do something about it. It's how I ended up going to law school at, at Yale Law School shortly thereafter, because I thought the road to liberation led through politics and uh, and uh, government. And I, I saw that many people in politics were lawyers. Well, I went to law school and I found out that the, the, legal, the law that I was studying was based on concepts that were hundreds of years old. And I said, whoa, this is gonna take a long time to change this society in this particular way. And so uh, I, uh, I, I left law school and ultimately went to divinity school, uh, you know, a Christian seminary, Yale Divinity School, and ultimately got a doctorate from, um, from what was then Hartford Seminary. Um, challenge, double challenges that I faced as a Muslim who was black in this country. Well, I, I, I would talk about this in two ways. Uh, one thing is that for me, uh, Islam empowered me as a human being and by extension as a black person. And it gave me the analytical tools to understand what my true nature was as a human being, rather than the kinds of things that I was hearing on the one hand from racists, but on the other hand from uh, uh, organizations like the Nation of Islam, which were which was arguing at that time, and still some people do argue in that group that uh, the white man is the devil. But they were very loud in arguing that the white man is the devil. So, so in one sense, I was caught between two negative uh, negative paradigms. One is that you are less than that because you're a black person, you're less than, and the other saying because you're black, you're better than everybody else. And so, I, uh, Islam, the Quran. And the way of our beloved Islam taught me better. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful to Allah, because Allah is the one who makes Muslims, that he touched me and brought me into the fold of Islam. And it's empowered me to understand some of the things that, that I couldn't understand before I took Shahada. 
Now, when it comes to working uh, across ethnicities uh, in the community, I, 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 this is uh, my take on this. I think that there is a strong streak of, um, of, uh, of uh, how should we say, because uh, I don't want to use that term. I, there's a strong streak of, uh, of prejudice against African-Americans in the Muslim American community. It's really there. You see it when people talk about uh, marriage is one of the ways that it really comes up when somebody who's from uh, Bangladesh or, or, or Kuwait uh, wants to marry a male, particularly wants to marry a Kuwaiti woman or a Bengali woman uh, or a Pakistani woman. You, you see it when it comes up there. Uh, and you see it manifest sometimes in the way uh, Muslims uh, who are black are treated uh, uh, within uh, within some uh, communities. On the other hand, I, I want to state that there's a strong streak of nativism amongst uh, African American uh, Muslims that I've seen and heard myself. That is to say, that's an automatic dislike for people who've immigrated to the United States and and talk about them in ways that the, the general society does. So for me, uh, part of my role is to try to teach both sides the folly of their ways. That is the African-Americans, the folly of being so nativist uh, and, uh, and the people who've immigrated, the folly of adopting the racial mores of the larger society. And there's no doubt that even though race is a biological fiction, the fact of the matter is, is that we live in a racialized society. What I mean by that, what people perceive you as often dictates how you're treated, right? I, and I run into this all the time, primarily because I'm black, not because I'm Muslim, primarily because I'm black, uh, because this people can tell this right away, uh, and I, I run into it fairly regularly, quite frankly. I ran into it the other night in a hotel where I uh, I had uh, lost my wallet uh, when I got to town uh, in Dallas. And, and then when I got to the hotel, uh, a hotel that I frequented quite a bit, and for a hotel chain where I was a, quote, platinum member, which means you have perks, they refused to give me a room, number one. And secondly... They told me that and I had arrived at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and secondly, they told me that at two o'clock in the morning, they closed uh, the lobby and I'd have to leave. Now, I was really flabbergasted by this. I don't think this was because I was Muslim. I would, I would be surprised if a white person, Muslim or whatever, would have been treated the same way. Uh, so my point is, is that most of... Uh, the negativity I see is not from being a Muslim, but and it may be because I'm a male, and and uh, and women are who cover are are more visible. I think that's part of it. But the reality is is that 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 colorism is is much stronger, I believe, than the anti-religious fervor. What, let me tell you what I show you what I mean by this. Uh, during the last uh, presidency, uh, uh, the, the then president, uh, two of the uh, things that he talked about the most 
was immigration, right? And those people in the streets who were running wild and tearing up the streets. I mean, he 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 encouraged the police uh, in the wake of George's uh, George Floyd's killing. He encouraged the police to shoot to kill. And to me, uh, people like him, their world is that dark-skinned people are not worthy human beings. And so uh, I think that people like him, and there are a lot of people like him, uh, 70 million people who, some of which were like him, voted for this person. Uh, I think that a lot of them, just if you see brown or black, they see inferior. And so I think uh, if you look at his major negative activities, the so-called Muslim ban, uh, the build that wall, and then telling the police to shoot to kill, all these were aimed at people who are brown and black, who, who if you're brown and black, you're labeled inferior. Again, for me, I don't, uh, quite frankly, I don't run into uh, discrimination as a Muslim uh, inside or outside of the Muslim community. It may be because I'm older. It may be because I happen to be a professor and, and people call me doctor. And so uh, people are much more deferential to me. Uh, I would think that younger uh, women would be more subject to discrimination in the Muslim community than I would be. Right. And um, you kind of led right into our next question, almost uh, touching on the death of George Floyd in 2020, obviously, as you know, there's a history of excessive police violence used against Black and brown people. Um, so can you just really give me your thoughts and ideas about how we should address that issue as a nation? Well, let me just say, personally, on April 14th, 1997, my son Malik Jones was killed by a police officer here in Connecticut at the end of a tra traffic stop. Two things about this. One is that we, we ought not want to live in a society where people are killed at the end of a traffic stop, as Trey Nichols was recently. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. In terms of policing, I mean, if you step back, what kinds of sense does it make that you end up killing somebody because you're making a traffic stop? This is, uh, this is very, very bad policing uh, because the reality is, is that it just, if you look at the statistics, it just doesn't affect people of color. Uh, a year after my baby Malik was killed by this police officer in New Haven, uh, I uh, let me back up for a moment. When when this happened, I called the then chief of police of the city uh, from which the police officer came. Well, it wasn't the city in which it was East Haven, and I called the mayor of the city. That, I tend to, if I want to get something done, I go straight to the top, like many other people do. And what I said to them, this is shortly after my son was killed. What I said to them uh, is, I, I said, first of all, uh, and I spoke to them individually, I said, do you uh, have anybody in your, in your um, uh, family who's 21 years old? Malik was 21 years old when he was killed. And they said, yes. I said, if you tried to cover this up, that is, the fact that one of your police officers chased for a traffic stop, chased my son about, I want, I want to say 10 miles or, or maybe less, five to 10 miles from the suburbs to the inner city of New Haven, Connecticut, where he lived, and then ended it by banging the butt of his gun against the window, right? 
and shooting him point blank seven or eight times. I don't know where, I mean, what kind of policing is this? I mean, where do you learn this in police academy? This is, this is the kind of things that you think happens in the movies. I said to them, if you try to cover this up, I guarantee you that the streets will be less safer for your children. And this wasn't a threat against them uh, from my perspective. It's just my belief that what's going on in the inner cities today and what's going on in places like Uvalde in Texas or places uh, Michigan State University, they're connected. They're connected. One prime connection between uh, the, the quote, black on black crime in the street and the shooting at Michigan State or Uvalde is the fact that we're we are the nation that has more guns per capita than more than any other nation in the world. That things that somebody gets ticked off about and uh, we're in another society, they'd go and smack somebody. Here, we have more guns than we have people. And to me, this makes what happens to, with the use of violence against uh, young African-American males, but against young African-American women and other brown and black people, uh, uh, easier to happen. What do I mean by this? I, I happen to live in the inner city of New Haven by choice. Uh, I think that, and I've heard police say that policing has changed over the past 25 years. At one time, they weren't as uptight when they came into communities. But with this proliferation of guns, if you're a police officer, you have to be more on guard than you were 25 years ago. And I'm not excusing uh, the murdering of our young children, let's, let's be clear. But you need to understand that the relationship to the, the killings in the school and the killings on the street of New Haven are interconnected because of the proliferation of guns. And so, so the notion of uh, coming into an armed camp, it wasn't there 25 years ago in New Haven, Connecticut. It is now because there's so many guns on the street, young kids, uh, and, and, and the officer indicated young kids, 10, 11, 12 years old has guns. Again, I'm not excusing uh, the kinds of things that happened to Trey Nichols or to my son or to the many others, but you have to understand the context. And so uh, my point about this is that, 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 that when we look at issues like George Floyd or Trey Nichols or Malik Jones, we have to step a couple of steps back and say that, yes, racism is a primary component of what, have, what we have here. But another component that we need to look at and think about doing something about is the proliferation of guns in the society that makes it easier for young school children or college kids, no matter what their racial ethnic, to be slaughtered. That's, they're basically slaughtered. We, we have uh, at least one slaughter a week when people go in with automatic weapons that are for no other use than to, to, to really uh, hurt people in a, in very quickly. And so uh, I think this is what we need to think about because we, we need to do, let, let me be clear, we need to do something about the racism that's endemic in police departments. But I don't think we're going to solve this problem unless we do something about the proliferation of guns on the street. 
Right. And so kind of related to that, um, you know, it also then we have, you know, people want to reform the police um, and then it kind of goes into education as well. So um, within those two, you know, institutions, we have the defund the police phrasing and the critical race, um, you know, theory phrasing. So kind of what do these two concepts mean to you in that in that context? Well, I'm 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 not a good person to for phrases like defund the police. Uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, I I live in an inner city neighborhood, and for many years, my wife and I were the co-captains of the block watch, and we worked closely with the New Haven Police Department. Okay, that's number one. Simply because I wanted my state streets safe, and given what's going on now in these streets. You, you, you're better off cooperating with the police department. That's number one. Number two, uh, I, I think the sloganeering is used as a wedge between uh, people in this country who are thinking people who want to do something about what's going on in this community. And then they don't like the idea of defunding the police. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm one of those people who's against starting your discussion with non-starters. And for some people, it's a non-starter. It's not because they're racist. It's not because uh, they uh, they love what the police is doing. But telling people defund the police without a paradigm shift in how we police it, and and many of the, in, in their defense, many of the people are saying this, but we're not doing ourselves any favors by chanting defund the police when when the average person who's not deeply involved in these things hear this as an outrageous proposition. I don't think it's an outrageous proposition. I think uh, we need a shift in our understanding, not only of policing, uh, also mass incarceration. And I'm gonna throw in healthcare because uh, healthcare uh, in this country is driven to a large extent by race and gender. You know, it's very dangerous for a black woman to have a baby in the street. That's outrageous. We're one of the most advanced uh, uh, countries in the world. But when you look at the infant mortality and the mortality rate of Black women uh, who have babies in relationship to white women, and it's something like uh, more than two to one, the mortality rate, even when you uh, allow for income, even rich black women have, have have worse outcomes per 100,000 100, births. There was a there was a study in the state of California was just recently released in the New York Times that even rich black women were more than twice unlikely to have have their babies die in the first, after the first year. This is amazing because you think that if you had money you're going to get better health care. It's, it's just simply not true. People see your brown skin, your black skin. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of studies on this. And uh, uh, so uh, my point is, is that when you, when you get back to the whole defund the police issue, is that we, we have, in this country, we have some crazy notions about how we help people through institutions. And if you look at the police department, that's one of the places, that's what I'm saying. You look at our so-called healthcare system, which really failed us during during COVID, then you, you, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And so what I'm saying is that 
the slogan, defund the police, if you defunded the police, let's just, let's do a thought experiment. If you de defunded the police and replaced them with social workers, it still wouldn't solve our problems in the in the streets of New Haven, I believe, because, because part of it is the way we're seen, the way our neighborhoods are seen, what kinds of public policies that we have in terms of housing. I mean, I'm not trying to get away from the issue of racism in relationship to the police department, but I'm 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 arguing that that uh, that this society needs a massive overhaul, and that we ought to talk in a way that we don't cut off potential allies who would help with the overhaul. That's what I mean. Right. And so my last question is, so what is just your message to African-Americans and Muslims in general um, who may feel overwhelmed or even angry whenever they face either racial and or religious injustices? What I like to tell people is that Black Lives Matter. They certainly do, because uh, much of my life in the United States uh, has been about proving my humanity. That's just true. Uh, oftentimes when I walk in a room or walk into a hotel, I have to prove that I'm worth something. This is this is outrageous. That that just hasn't gone away, even though there are more of us who are educated, more of us who have degrees, and even more of us who are in places like Obama in the White House. That notion that uh, we're less than human, it has not gone away. And so in a sense, Black people and other brown uh people are fighting for the notion of being seen as uh, as human beings. And I, I would say that don't let people devalue you. I'm talking to Muslims. I'm talking to other Black, uh, uh, black people and other people of color. Uh, because the reality is, is that the one way of re responding to this is responding in kind, just like the Nation of Islam did in the 1930s. Oh, you think we're less than the white man is a devil, and uh, there's a popular idea. I think his name is Hindi. Uh, he he argues in his book uh, that you're either a racist or an anti-racist. This doesn't make sense in the real world. It, it just doesn't, because many people don't know enough about racism or anti-racism to take a stand. But one once you tell people you're racist or anti-racist. You're driving away potential allies, even within your own group. And so don't, and, and again, it it portrays us primarily as a victim. I used to tell uh, college students who were Black and who were Muslims that, you know, there's this movement called microaggressions, wherein, you know, we need to be, and safe spaces in colleges. I'm not too keen on them simply because in my classes, and I teach a lot about race and gender, uh, I could see somebody seeing some of the things that I say in class as a microaggression, right? Uh, and uh, the other part about it is that it, it, it reinforces the notion that those of us who are black and indigenous and people of color need to be shielded from words, right? And I, I don't like that paradigm. Uh, I, I told people uh, here at Yale, I talked, actually, I talked to the Muslim Student Association at Yale after there was a big brouhaha here about uh, wearing Halloween costumes that included blackface, right? And I said, uh, your message to the leadership at Yale is not we need to be shielded from microaggressions and, 
we need safe spaces, your message should be that I am a valuable part of this community. Therefore, I should be respected as a valuable, just as anybody else in here is respected. And that you ought to care about these kinds of things, these black faces, uh, this name calling as part of community, because when it happens to you, and it could happen to you, it happens to women, it happens to all kinds of people, we want to band together to fight it. So my first message is don't present yourself as a, being a value where you are and don't present yourself as being a victim. So Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, I, I have a, a, a TED talk that's called Black Lives Matter Because All Lives Matter, where I tie together some of the mainly uh, mainly uh, sexism and racism and try to get the people to understand that concurrent with the actions against Black people in this country, there have been other movements to marginalize and even kill uh, white people. A good example is that the turn of the century when over uh, the 20th century, not this century, uh, in the 1920s, when over 4,000 Black people were being uh, what the Equal Justice Initiative called, who were racially terrorized by lynchings, over 4,000, the United States of America was sterilizing primarily white people because they thought they were inferior. Between 1927, there's a famous court case called Buck versus Bell, when Oliver Wendell Holmes, a famous uh, liberal justice, uh, declared that three generations of imbeciles are enough when he declared that, the poor white woman from Virginia, who was the subject, who was a test case, who were brought by the people who wanted to sterilize her there, brought to the Supreme Court, it led to the sterilization of over 60,000 Americans under the color of law because they were seen as being inferior. We don't talk about this much, right? And so uh, this was happening right alongside the lynching of Black people. And it, it, it makes you think about what's going on in this society that causes these things to happen. And they are related. They're not separate. Because uh, eugenics was not at first aimed at Black people. Uh, our, we got our Kellogg cornflakes that some people eat every morning from a guy named John Kellogg, who had a sanatorium in, in Battle Creek, Michigan, trying to figure out how to make a master white race. This was a real thing. This, you don't have to make this up. My point about this is that Black Lives Matter, because all lives matter, is because the same kind of uh, attitude toward humanity and people uh, that caused Black people to be lynched in the 1920s was the same kind of attitude toward humanity and people that caused the sterilization of substandard white people during that particular time. So the first point is don't be a, don't, don't be a victim. Be stand up and say, I'm valuable wherever I am. I'm valuable. I belong here. I, you don't have to protect me. Uh, the second thing is to understand that, 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 that this kind of racial animus is part of a larger, larger uh, idea in the society by a minority of people to marginalize different groups, marginalize women. Uh, there was something called the Chinese Exclusion Act. In 1888, I believe. I mean, and so, and 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 we should avoid the uh, what uh, a uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, especially called 
the oppression Olympics. We should avoid uh, my oppression is, is better than yours. And so, uh, th so we should be careful. So that's the second point. Uh, the final thing I would say to Muslims who are black, that when you encounter these situations of racism, because they still, they still exist, uh, you, uh, you remember Black Lives Matter and you should stand up for that concept and, and that all lives matter, right? But the BLM that we should remember the most is to be like Muhammad, peace be upon him. And uh, what I mean by this is that the night of my, my son's killing in New Haven about a quarter of a century ago, when I was driving over to, uh, to uh, one of the family houses, uh, through, uh, through the tears that I was crying uh, from losing my baby, I could only think about the hadith of our beloved Islam saying, patience is at the beginning of calamity. That was a calamity for me. But this is something, I've, I'm, I'm also a prison chaplain. I've been teaching to the young men just before that. How could I not be other than patient in this situation? And, and what patience meant for me uh, at that time, I was very active in the community and very much, uh, of course, the media wanted to talk to me and all this kind of stuff. I was so angry and hurt that I imposed a moratorium on myself with the press for two months because I, I knew that what I've said would not be beneficial to people and beneficial to Malik's memory. So patience. So my point is, is that we should use the model of our beloved Islam and remember that his his founding community was a multicultural community by any stretch of the imagination in a tribal society where what tribe you belong to or what tribe you were client of was extremely important. We Muslims we forget this, and so I'm saying I'm not saying that racism is not a problem. It is a very serious problem. Prejudice can kill you, as it killed Trey Nichols and it killed my son. But to to frame it as if it's only all about that and that we don't have a higher standard of justice in these people is extremely important. So those are my three pieces of advice. Don't, don't be a victim. Don't forget that you're not the only marginalized group and whenever you can be like Muhammad, peace be upon you. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week from me and Maya. Goodbye for now. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at American Muslim Today. And if you'd like to read more about the, this story and access more digital content, feel free to check out our website at AmericanMuslimToday.com. We'll see you next week on the Muslim Viewpoint.